welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I am your host and your narrator, spring Jack, and it brings me great excitement to bring you the second part of our multi-part series on ghost stories and scary shit from the Old West, backed by popular demand. I want to thank all repeat listeners for continuing to tune in, for spreading the word. I can see my number slowly creeping up, and I greatly appreciate it, and it wouldn't be possible if it weren't for you guys. Welcome all new listeners. If this is your first time tuning in, thank you very much for checking out the show. I appreciate you as well. However, please let me take this time to tell you that this show has been described as irreverent and rude, as well as a multitude of other things. So if you have young listeners, or if you are a pussy, please take this time to turn the show off. And I'm back. Thank you guys very much for tuning back in. I'm going to get this started right now after a brief message from this fake company that doesn't sponsor me. Thanks to the internet, your husband or boyfriend is masturbating at least five times a day. It's a fact. 80% of relationships fail because women lure in men with lots of sex, then turn it off and get fat. He's going to cheat, and quite frankly, you deserve it. How can you compete with strippers and porn stars? How do you learn what men really want? Isn't it time you attended some classes at Nightlight's Continuing Education? Nightlight's offers courses that will teach you the techniques he's come to expect. Fulfill his fantasies without the messy divorce. Contact Nightlight's today and sign up for classes such as Rotisserie 101, Advanced ATM, and Coming Out Swinging for Beginners. Get your diploma in double P. Contact Nightlight's today. All right, let's talk about the Blue Light Lady from Fort Hayes State Historic Site in Kansas. Where the wind once swept across the vast Kansas prairie, civilization has now made its mark. Today, towns and farms cover the expanses where tall grass once served as the food source for the great buffalo herd. It's almost amusing and funny now that a major interstate crosses the plain, the same plain where wagon trains of immigrants used to make their slow progress towards a new life. But there are many in the town of Hayes in west-central Kansas who are convinced the historic past may be alive yet and capable of frightening manifestations. Mark Gilbert is not from Kansas, but he encountered a segment of Kansas history that will remain burned into his mind throughout the rest of his life. He will never understand a midsummer's evening he spent working on the outskirts of Hayes. Gilbert, a Texan, was just over 20 years old at the time, and he was working as a combine operator for a custom-cutting contracting business in which combiners work for a fee to harvest a farmer's grain. It was the second week in July, as Gilbert remembers. The wheat fields in central Kansas were gold and ready for harvest, and a few days before Gilbert's bosses had agreed to cut wheat owned by the university system in Hayes. Now they were finishing that job. Then they would be moving to the north to harvest near the state line. It was the last day of their work just south of Hayes and a curiously red sundown, a windy sundown, streaked the western sky in crimson. Gilbert's boss was in a hurry to finish cutting, ready to continue into the night, if necessary. There were four combines going on in the fields, as Gilbert remembers, and as the other three combines finished, he continued to work. There was little wheat left to harvest in the field that Gilbert was working, and he decided to finish the job with his combine lights on, while the other workers called it a day. The red sundown faded to twilight, and Gilbert's boss left a grain truck at the edge of the field so the worker could empty the wheat into it when he finished. 
Gilbert told his boss and the other workers he would join them in town for supper and a few beers in about an hour. In the deepening twilight, the wind died down considerably and Gilbert was glad for the sudden quiet. And during the day, the blowing grain dust had filled his eyes and, and they hurt. But he had washed them out with water from his water bag. He felt better now. And he felt better yet that the end of the harvest was in sight. He worked with the radio in the combine cab playing and watched the wheat flow into the sickle or the cutting bar of the combine. It became a scene that played out over and over in front of his eyes. In the darkness, the stalks of wheat cast odd shadows. He turned a corner to make that, that would be the next, what would be the last round in the field, he hoped. And at the edge of the wheat was the outline of the grain truck. He remembered, looking over at it, and then back, and then suddenly stopping, st or stomping hard on the combine's brakes. Crossing in front of the machine, in the shadows just beyond the lights, was what appeared to be a woman in a long blue dress. It was a woman. It didn't seem like she was walking normally, though, Gilbert recalls, but kind of drifting, actually drifting fast. In the lights, I was sure the dress was blue, but then poof, like my ex-wife, she was gone. He looked all around the combine for any sides of the woman in the blue dress. Didn't see any. He took a deep breath, trying to decide whether or not he'd actually seen anybody at all or if he was just tired. It had all happened in a matter of seconds. After he was sure there was no one around, he put the combine back into gear and started cutting again. But he turned the radio off, concentrating on where he was going and everything around him. He looked around constantly, his nerves on edge. The darkness outside the cab of the combine seemed to be even blacker now. He considered stopping and going into town, but decided against it. Who would believe him? His boss might even become angry. Gilbert had said he would finish cutting the field, and it would seem like he was just in a hurry to get to the bar if he showed up now. Besides, only part of a round remained he had to finish. See that? It's that Texas work ethic. He continued cutting the wheat. The lights of the combine showed the stalks of grain as they moved into the sickle and were cut off, and then threshed inside the combine. He was certain he was going to see the woman inside, and he felt a when a jackrabbit bounded from the wheat just in front of his lights, Gilbert thought his heart stopped, and after the rabbit, he began to laugh at himself. Most likely, he hadn't even seen a woman at all. It was probably some sort of a shadow that the wheat and the lights had created. That's what he told himself, at least. He finished harvesting the field and steered the combine over to the grain truck. He positioned the combine so that the spout extended over the box of the truck, and then he began to empty into the hopper. While the wheat spilled into the back of the truck, he climbed down from the cab and he got a shovel, and then he returned to the back of the truck and began to spread the wheat around to make room for the rest of the grain. It was hard work, and Gilbert broke into a sweat immediately. His thoughts now were on getting into town and showering and joining his bosses and fellow workers. When the last of the grain came out of the combine, he jumped down from the truck and climbed back into the combine cab to turn off the auger. Then he climbed back down. It was still now, and a large part of the moon was shining, just rising and Gilbert remembered that he had left the keys in the combine and climbed up the ladder to the cab. Partway down the ladder, he felt that somebody was watching him from behind. He turned and he looked down, and there was this strange and hazy whitish-blue light on the ground at the foot of the ladder. Inside the light was the figure of a woman in a long blue dress. Her face, partially covered by what appeared to be a bonnet, was lifted to his. It was a face shrouded in a cloudy haze, as Gilbert recalled, but it was that of a woman. He couldn't remember her features, whether she was pretty or happy or sad, but for a split second of recognition. He turned away from the image and clung helplessly to the ladder. Traumatized, he couldn't speak or yell or even move for a second. When the feeling of the presence was finally gone, he mustered up enough nerve to look down again, and there was only the dark ground below him, nothing to show that anything had been there. But Mark Gilbert was sure of what he had seen. 
It would never leave his mind. His hands trembled as he retrieved the key from the cab and climbed back down, looking all around while he ran to his truck. He drove into Hayes to meet his boss and his friends, wondering what had happened and why. Who was the woman and why she appeared to him? Once in town, and finally cleaned up, Gilbert resolved not to say anything to anybody. He didn't know the guys he was working with all that well, and certainly didn't know this town. Just try to forget it, he told himself. But he was changed somehow by what had happened, and his fellow workers commented on how jumpy he seemed to be. He didn't drink much beer, and he remained in the company of somebody the whole time. It led his boss to remark jokingly that he believed Gilbert had seen a ghost in the field. Everyone laughed except for Gilbert. The next morning, when they all went to get the combines loaded onto the flatbed trucks from the, for the trip north, Gilbert looked across the stubble of harvested field and shook his head. It seemed now like any other, nor, any other normal wheat field that he'd ever worked on in his life. But it wasn't normal. Somebody else was out here. He felt it. Someone possibly even at this moment, unseen. He didn't know who she was or why she was there and didn't want to ask. But come nightfall, when they would all be gone north, Mark Gilbert believed that that woman in the bonnet and the long blue dress would be likely drifting across the field once again. Men, face it. The male menopause is real. You're going to lose your virility someday. How about now? In the time it has taken to listen to this commercial, you're less virile than you were at the start. You've just wasted a whole lot of sperm. The decline has begun. It is time to fight back. As you start to go gray, get saggy, you're being upstaged by young bucks who will seduce your women and take your fortune. They need to know you're still the alpha. They need to know you're top dog and they're still a little pup. However, staying on top isn't just about jacking yourself with testosterone until you're humping the furniture. You'll need to go big. Showtime, who's boss? Do something really impressive and tell everyone about it. Hike Kilimanjaro, dog sled across sites. Siberia, trek across Antarctica, raft the Amazon. You need an adventure travel service that can take you to the far reaches of the earth and give you the kind of experience you can boast about back home. Show them what kind of man you really are. A man who is fighting for meaning the only way he knows how, by showing off. It's time to take the menopause by the throat and strangle the life out of it. Contact Manipause Adventures today or visit menopauseadventures.com. The mysterious bitch that frightened Mark Gilbert during that summer night in 77 is well known to the people of Hayes. Had he brought up the fact that he had seen something, he might even have felt better. The legend of Elizabeth Polly is one that will live forever in Ellis County. There's a park named after the pioneer woman who, it is said, died at Old Fort Hayes back in 1867. Today, a monument stands at the site of her internment and at the summit of Sentinel Hill. Her story, however, is hard to trace through Fort Records, but solidly rooted in local legend. Once the site of Fort Hayes, the military post during the Indian Wars, the town of Hayes, Kansas, will always think of Elizabeth Polly as a symbol of all that is just and good. Taken as told, the Elizabeth Polly story is an inspiring one. It is said that she traveled the Smoky Hill River County in mid-1860s with her husband Ephraim, a settler who supplied forts and outposts with dry goods on his way west. For a time, they traveled the Fort Larned Trail and the Fort Hayes-Fort Dodge Trail before finally settling at Fort Hayes, where Elizabeth grew to love the wild plains. She could often be seen taking walks outside the fort to the bluffs, which run to the south and west of the old fort grounds. She could be seen in the evenings at sundown, walking the bluff, her bonnet fastened tightly and her blue dress moving in the wind. It was a place that she loved, a place where she could look out over the fort and then to the west, where the high plains stretched out towards the distant Rocky Mountains. She would remain there until nightfall settled over the vast plains and then return to the fort. She had mentioned frequently that when she died, these bluffs were going to be her eternal home. 
old Fort Hayes records document an Ephraim Polly who was hospitalized, who was a hospital steward there during an outbreak of cholera in 67. Elizabeth, though, was not mentioned in the records, and she went on to win her place in local and regional history. Because, during the cholera epidemic, she became the angel of the fort, comforting the soldiers in their illness. She was there whenever she was needed, and everybody came to know and love her. But in that summer of 67, Elizabeth Polly, no surprise, contracted cholera while treating the people dying of cholera. On her deathbed, she was assured the bluffs above the fort would be her final resting place, but it was found that the top where she had walked so many evenings was too rocky for a gravesite. So, after a full military funeral, in respect, she was interred at the base of the bluffs. Many of the soldiers at the fort who were also interred near her at the military cemetery. But in December of 1905, the bodies were ordered exhumed and reburied at Fort Leavenworth. Oh, that's fucked, man. Uh, Fort Leavenworth is a military prison. Uh, Elizabeth Polly's grave was left untouched, however, until a reported reinterment took place in 1941. It's said that the Civilian Conservation Corps moved her remains to the top of the hill, where the monument to her legend stands today. There are those who speculate as to why the phantom blue light lady haunts the hills outside of Hayes. One possible theory is that Elizabeth Polly cannot rest, that she's still in search of the soldiers who were buried with her and later moved to military prison. Others say that she loved those hills so much in life that she cannot make herself leave them in death. Over the years, various newspapers and historical articles have told and retold the story of Elizabeth Polly, that she did and still does walk the bluffs. Those who go by the actual record dispute that she was ever really there, even in life. But the monument at the site of the lonely grave, as it's known, maintains that she did exist, and that this remarkable woman lost her life tending to the sick and dying soldiers at the fort. Mark Gilbert's experience with the Phantom was preceded by a number of sightings, including one case that occurred sometime just before 1960. A night patrolman with the Hayes Police Force was cruising a newly constructed piece of roadway on the edge of town, and it was around 2.30 in the morning, and everything was quiet. The patrolman was lost in his thoughts until something strange and terrifying happened. Bob Maxwell, now associated with Fort Hayes State University, was a patrolman on duty that night. He remembered that odd night when he heard the other officer call for help over the radio. Now you listen here and you listen good, motherfuck. I responded to his call, Maxwell said recently, and I found him parked in the bypass standing by his patrol car. He was a chain smoking, his face was white. He was pretty shook up. I asked him what was fucking wrong, and he fucking told me that he thought he'd fucking run over a woman, but couldn't fucking find her. The distraught officer then told Maxwell that he had been driving along slowly when a woman in a long blue dress wearing what looked like a bonnet suddenly appeared in his headlights. He had no time to stop, and when he got out to see how badly she was hurt, there was nobody there. Maxwell didn't know what to tell him. They looked at each other for a long time, and both of them knew of the Elizabeth Polly legend. Maxwell shrugged while the other officer shook his head and repeated over and over. She was there. I saw her. I tell you she was there. One of the first recorded sightings of Elizabeth Polly was just as far back as 1917. In that year, a farmer named John Schmidt was on horseback early one morning, driving his cows from pasture into the barn for milking. His dog was with him, helping drive the cows. Schmitty, it is reported, noticed a woman wearing a blue dress and bonnet walking across the pasture. She was traveling from the direction of Old Fort Hayes towards an abandoned shack. Puzzled, Schmitty called to her, and there was no response. The dog ran home, leaving Schmitty behind, so Schmitty rode towards the woman, but still could get no response. 
He gave up when his horse refused to take him closer to the mysterious woman. Oh, God damn it! I give up. Schmidt returned to his farm a short distance away, where his wife and kids stood watching. Schmidt could not tell his wife who the woman was and reported that the woman avoided eye contact, any sort of contact, that is, by speech or eyesight, and the woman had gone into the shack at the edge of his pasture. After a day's work, Schmidt and his brother-in-law, Anton Rupp, returned to the shack to investigate. Schmidt's wife, terrified, oops, excuse me, Schmidt's wife testified she had not seen the woman leave the shack all day, and she kept a vigilant watch on it. And suppose she had stayed there. Schmidt and Rupp found the shack vacated and filled with dust. There was no evidence anyone had ever been there in recent history. While the legend of Elizabeth Polly lives on, there have been other lesser-known incidents that suggest the spirit of old Fort Hayes still exists within the town of Hayes itself. In 1902, the old officers' quarters were moved from the fort site into the town, where they served as an apartment complex. <laughs> in the early 1960s, two unrelated but equally frightening experiences happened to college students living in the building. After classes one afternoon, a young woman returned to her apartment to see soldiers in full military garb sitting around her dining room table playing cards. Wow. Oh, she, she didn't have the reaction that the porno that plays in my head had, but she turned and fled immediately. All right, well, that's one way to do it. A few years later, a young man named Adam, rooming with another college student on the second floor of the building, had an experience he'll never forget. Adam was sitting at his desk studying, and his roommate was attending classes on campus at the time. The quiet in the building was broken by the sound of a door slamming downstairs. Adam then heard the sounds of footsteps crossing the floor approaching the stairs. He naturally assumed his roommate had returned from campus and was on his way to his room. Adam continued to study. The sound of the footsteps came up the stairs and into the room. Adam turned but saw nobody there, and he was shocked. For the sounds of the footsteps continued towards his roommate's bed. Then Adam watched in terror as the edge of the roommate's bed sagged. Dropping his books, Adam fled the room. He soon moved out, as did his roommate when he heard the story. The old officer's quarters were returned to the fort site in May of 1987, and since... There have been no reported paranormal incidents. They've been left there. But part of the history of the U.S. Army is contained within those old walls, and the legacy of the soldiers will always exist. But by far, the best-known legend of Hayes, Kansas, is the blue light lady Elizabeth Pauley, who, it seems, must want to move from some unknown dimension into the world of flesh and blood. There are those who will always have her vision deep in their mind, for they've seen her. And there are those who might someday see her wandering the fields and pastures around the lonely grave at the crest of Sentinel Hill. It's time to take your weight problem seriously. It's time to stop pussyfooting around with so-called lifestyle changes. It's time for surgery today. Don't wait a minute. Don't try other methods. Try the gastro band. Don't for one second think you can do it on your own. We both know you can't. Otherwise, you wouldn't have gotten into this mess. Get real about your weight problems and your complete lack of willpower. Give in. Get surgery. Get out. It's the world we live in. Slice and dice your problems away. Then you can look like other people. Have the gastro band inserted today and watch your weight and problems melt away. Finally, you can be happy like normal people. It's time to put down the knife and fork and go under the knife and scalpel. Give up and get thin. Gastro band surgery. Remember, surgery solves everything. Let's talk about the Hot Springs Phantom from Chico Hot Springs Resort in Montana. The Chico Hot Springs Resort hosts many guests over the course of a year, 
People from around the world have come to know the stately lodge nestled against the mountains in Montana's Paradise Valley. A place for some fine cuisine and relaxation with an unbeatable view. People from where I'm from, around Hollywood, know Chico, as do any number of writers, adventurers, and sightseers looking for western flair. The lodge at Chico Hot Springs is well known for its turn-of-the-century architecture, but few are aware of the permanent residence on the third floor. Tim Barnes is now the manager of security at Chico, and he was a skeptic about the supernatural. Housekeepers reported seeing things that were weird and strange noises, and closing doors to him were met with a stupid-ass smile. He gave little credence to the reports that footsteps could be heard when nobody else was around, or that kitchen plates and silverware had been left in disarray at various times. It's kind of if that tree falls in the woods and no news media is there to report it. Is it still Donald Trump's fault? Or is it not? But Tim Barnes was made a believer in the wee hours of a May morning in 1986. A young man in his mid-twenties, Tim had been at Chico some eight years, and a lot of things happened that need to be looked into by, by the night watchman, but the slim security guard was not prepared for what he witnessed in the darkness of the lodge on that cold night. The crowd was finally leaving the adjoining Chico Saloon. It had been another annoying-ass Saturday night with plenty of foot-stomping music and the occasional disagreement between patrons. But all that was over for another week, and the employees in the bar were leaving to go home. Barnes and another officer on duty, Ron Woolery, had just finished locking all the doors, drawing their coats around them against the chilly spring air. The two guards took the board walkway from the saloon to the main lodge. The moon slipped behind the clouds, and the breeze rustled the pines above the parking lot. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary, and in the cool silence, steam vapors rose from the hot springs pool adjacent to the saloon. Barnes and Woolery reached the lodge discussing the activity in the saloon. Barnes opened the door. The lobby was lit by three dim lamps in the ceiling. Just inside the door, Barnes stopped suddenly, and Woolery bumped into him. "'What's wrong?' Woolery asked." Look right there, mother bitch, Barnes said, pointing across the lobby to an old piano. And there in a, there was a blurry and a smoky haze. There was a figure who hovered just over the floor near the piano. It appeared white and filmy and contained only a face and an upper body which stared at them. The rest of the figure tailed down into nothing. Woolery gasped and Barnes stood frozen. The figure didn't move but appeared transfixed before the old piano as it continued to watch the two of them. Its gaseous presence was obvious and unmistakable in the dark recesses of the quiet lobby. The two men stared for nearly half a minute while the figure remained there, swarming in the haze like thin smoke. Woolery finally managed to ask Barnes what they were seeing. It's obviously a ghost, you big, dumb, stupid cow, Barnes said. I guess what they've been saying about the third floor is true after all. What are we going to do? Woolery asked. Barnes got the idea to photograph the phantom before it vanished. That meant working his way around the check-in desk and into the office. There was a camera on one of the desks. He remembered seeing it there earlier. But walking towards the ghost was something Tim Barnes had never imagined he would ever have to do. Deciding he needed to get a picture to prove what he and Woolery were seeing, Barnes slowly made his way towards the hovering figure. He edged around the end of the lobby desk and through the office door. There he fumbled for a time with a Polaroid camera. He finally found a flash bar, but his trembling hands would not allow him to fit it into the camera. Unfamiliar with the camera anyway, he decided just to take a photo and hope for the best. Upon coming back out from the office, Barnes found the figure still hovering beside the piano. 
He brought the camera up and took the picture. Just then, the vision was gone. God, I can't believe what we just saw, Willery said. Well, you best believe it, you big, fat, stupid, ugly whore. It was there, said Barnes. Inside the office, they waited for the picture to develop, and Barnes commented that he wished he had used the flash because the room was too dark for a good picture. They both commented that the owner, Mike Art, was going to be in for a shock when he read the security report. I wonder what he was doing down here, who he was, Woolery thought out loud. How'd you know it was a he, you sexist fucking fascist? I thought it was a she. It seemed like a she to me, all sexy and whatnot. The picture developed, and they studied it. There were no clear images. The square was black, except for three hazy spots in a row where the ceiling lamps hung, and one small white spot in the center of the picture. Is that tiny white spot the ghost, Woolery wondered? Barnes shrugged. If you read about as good as you identify shit in pictures, I doubt we'll ever know. Ron Woolery wrote the security report that night. It read in part, 0200, bar closed, number 10, off duty. Number 10 and I both saw a ghost in the lobby. Tim grabbed camera that was on the office and tried to take a picture of it. In parentheses, picture included with report. Ghost, dispersed, all secure. 0300, all secure. <laughs> the experience of Tim Barnes and Ron Woolery is by no means the first encounter with the Phantom at Chico Hot Springs, though the two security guards have so far been the only people to see the ghost for any length of time. There was one report of a New Year's Eve occurrence when a group of teenagers and young adults began diving into the hot springs pool from one of the roofs. Oh, God, a mysterious white light appeared and began moving along the eaves of the building. Some speculate that the light was trying to make the partiers get down from the roof. The ghost, whether it be a he or she, or as Tim Barnes suggests, possibly some combo, is a common manifestation that exerts a feeling of presence most notably during the window and, er, winter and early months, early spring months, but nobody can predict anything about the phantom. The speculation as to whom the ghost or ghosts could have been or the combination of people it could have been, has effectively been narrowed down to the first owners of the resort. Pennsylvanian, named William E. Knowles, came to Emigrant Gulch in 1880 in search of gold. He was a big and he was big and congenial and loved to be outdoors. He made a lot of friends in a short time. In 1888, he met a young woman from Ontario named Percy Matheson. She wore her hair long and its natural color brown and a twist atop her head and was never one to hold back her words. I think that's the old Western way of saying that she was a fucking asshole. She had strong opinions about drinking and gambling, maintaining her refinements against all other, against all comers. Well, in 1891, Percy Matheson married Bill Knowles, and they shared a vision of what the impressive hot springs could be if they made it into a resort. In the late 1890s, Bill and Percy built a boarding house near the hot springs where miners and trappers could get a room and board for $6 a week, including fresh strawberries at every meal. Wow, it's a good deal. The warm springs nearby provided a relaxing atmosphere after a hard day panning for gold. With businesses, with business so grand, the Knowleses invested in the construction of the first hotel. On June 20th, 1900, it opened for business. The resort flourished. Guests ranted and raved about the accommodations and the adjoining bathhouses. Bathhouses. Ha. In the natural warm springs. I knew they were selling booty out of this place. Bill Knowles soon opened a saloon and a dance hall, despite the disapproval of his wife, who spoke out adamantly against liquor and wanted it nowhere near her hotel. <laughs> and yet he did it anyway. The fame of the Chico Hot Springs grew, and the resort never lacked for patrons. Cirrhosis of the liver killed Bill Knowles in 1910, and Percy was left in charge of the resort. She and her son, Radborn, now 12, and the only child of the marriage, 
carried on with the business and made radical changes. Percy wanted no more liquor and closed down the saloon, and Chico began to take on a new image. It became a care center rather than a pleasure resort. Percy Knowles secured the services of a Dr. George A. Townsend and turned the resort into a hospital and sanitarium. Yeah, that's way more fun than drinking, you fucking asshole. Townsend became widely noted for his brain surgery, but he didn't stay. Other rapid changes put a twist into the Knowles plan. Rad Bourne soon left with the girl he wanted to marry, and paying patients became fewer and fewer. Without her son to help, without her son to help her manage the establishment, Knowles strained under the pressure of the resort-turned-hospital that was losing business at an alarmingly rapid pace. Um, I would say that's a bad thing, but a hospital not having patients is not necessarily the worst thing. So, uh, blow me. Knowles was revered by her staff of barely legal 18-year-old nursing staff girls. But she finally broke under that strain, and while confined to one of the third-floor rooms, gradually went insane. She was removed to a state hospital where she later died. Seems obvious to those that have witnessed certain events there uh, that at least part of Percy Knowles is back. There is one particular rocker that seems to always end up turns what faces the window and Emigrant Peak, just behind the resort. It doesn't matter which room the rocker's placed in because the chair fucking moves. There's an attic, dusty and seldom visited, and filled with old and discarded objects where a Bible rests open on a wooden bench. The Bible's always open, yet its pages remain dust-free. Though no one goes into the attic much anymore, there is certainly activity on the third floor, where there are a number of the old rooms, including a room number 49, in which Percy Knowles was confined during her lengthy illness. On One other room, believed to be a favorite of Bill Knowles before he died, also contained an unexplained feeling. The majority of the stories circulate among the workers, and each has his or her own idea about the ghost genders. <laughs> Some are sure it's a female, others, while speaking unconsciously, often refer to the manifestation as a he. Various housekeepers have reported that they felt a presence in the room while changing sheets on a bed. As one housekeeper explains it, I just I just feel that he is there. I hum, hum to myself and hurry up and get my work done and get out of there. But sometimes I even ask him to please leave until I'm done. I don't like the feeling. Another caretaker will no longer work on the third floor. Not after she heard a door slam when she was the only one on the level at the time. <laughs> I tell you what, I'm not working on that goddamn fucking third floor till you call my union rep and get him down here. Uh-uh. Others also have heard door slamming and footsteps along the third floor hallway. It's not uncommon for the kitchen help to find silverware and plates in a disarray when they come in and get the dining room ready for breakfast guests. One of the women working at the check-in desk reported that during the spring of 1987, a woman from Billings, Montana, who said she had psychic powers, felt the presence of a female phantom on the third floor. She seemed to be content, the woman told the desk clerk, but there's but there's a uh, definitely somewhere up there. Are the old owners still in residence? Is there a reason why Chico maintains its old West style and feeling? As can be said about some places, Chico has its own personality, and Bill and Percy Knowles seem to be that personality. The resort has had various owners since the Knowles time, and most recently, under the innovative management of Mike Art. The complex has evolved into a haven for those who want something different and rustic. It's become widely known through word of mouth and through travel magazine writers, and the little resort at Chico provides... Welcome hospitality to a lot of people who wish to see part of the Old West in a valley crowded by the 20th century. The mysterious noises and the sounds of the footsteps on the third floor are also becoming widely known. Perhaps Bill and Percy Knowles may still be up there residing in this quaint little retreat they both fucking loved so dearly. Who gave you the pot? Who? The spanking creates an atmosphere of fear. Waterboarding creates an atmosphere of terrified respect. 
me, sir? I wouldn't be here today if my parents hadn't smacked the shit out of me on a regular basis. Teach your kids respect. The government approved way. Thank you, sir. Buy my book. Hitting kids works wonders today. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the Lost Trail Hotel. The Lost Trail Hotel is in southwestern Arizona. Sunday newspapers often publish interesting feature articles, sometimes, some of which can lead to life-changing experiences, though I've never had that experience. Certainly, not all Sunday supplements are aimed at altering the way in which we live life. Some articles have been known to alter the way we looked at death. George Gardner of Sonoida, Arizona, is a case in point. A tall and mild-mannered man of middle age, Gardner, Gardiner, cannot pass up interesting places to go and look around. Perpetually in search of interesting sights to explore with his wife, Wilma, he adjusts his glasses and takes in all the details when he hears or reads something about the past. Gardner's experience with the odd and the stranger forms of life, uh, became, they became relevant in his life after a death occurred on a spring night in 1976. It all began with an article he read in the Tucson Daily Star about an old hotel at the edge of a little town nestled in the lonely desert country not far from the Mexico-New Mexico border. The small and unique Lost Trail Hotel had a lot to offer guests who wanted the flavor of the Old West. Taste of dirt in their mouth, if you will. Mrs. Croft, the manager, had been there 30 years and was known for her smile, fake tits, and hospitality. Steak or chicken was served nightly, and you could have one or the other, but not both. The hotel had only five rooms, so it was essential to call ahead for reservations. Nothing's changed but a few light fixtures, George told Wilma as he read the article. Wilma was as interested as her husband. The couple quickly sold themselves in the idea of driving into the desert to find the Lost Trail Hotel. Retired from a successful real estate business, George spends his time traveling with Wilma and writing articles and books about the West, both contemporary and historical. He also makes medicine pipes for the Western Writers of America, pipes that are presented yearly as Medicine Pipe Bearers Awards to the writer of the best first, novel, first Western novel of the year. The pipe is an original each year and is a work of fine craftsmanship. Those who are lucky enough to receive the Medicine Pipe Bearers Award in the form of one of George Gardner's pieces of art cherish it throughout their lives. Is that a weed pipe? Or is it like an old native medicine pipe? With the Lost Trail Hotel and its unique story grabbing his imagination, George finished reading the article, and he learned that there was an old Wells Fargo freight office there and a railroad track that ran along the outskirts of town, an old track abandoned for more than 50 years. Yet don't touch it, motherfucker, it's still a felony. Here was a town in an adobe hotel as old as the West itself, with nothing changed. It was midweek when George and Wilma packed up for an overnight stay at the Lost Trail Hotel. They had called ahead for reservations and had reached... The elderly, and yet spry, Mrs. Croft. In her crackly but mannerly voice, she assured them of a room and a good meal, and she told them how to get there, and how to avoid the bad roads, the roads that led into nowhere in the desert. From their Sonoida home, George and Wilma departed on what they concluded would be a full afternoon's drive into the historic region where the Apaches made their last desperate stand against the blue colt soldiers sent to track them down. The U.S. Army proved relentless and too numerous for the strong Apache warriors. And before that last gasp of freedom, the Apache nation had been a strong people. They had warred for many years against the spreading Spanish settlements and in early days against the powerful Comanche. 
Now, this history was but dust and vegetation that harbored a little-known remnant of the past. Of the years of dreams and culture, all that was left was a monument. George and Wilma drove through the desert towards Lost Trail and its historic hotel. It would be a direct link with history, a little adobe building that had been built a century before, that very few tourists knew existed. The gardeners grew restless to get there, but on this spring day, with the desert popping into full bloom around them, George Gardner had no, no way of knowing that nightfall in the Lost Trail Hotel would bring him a vision he would be unable to explain. George and Wilma arrived at Lost Trail in the early evening. It was every bit what they'd expected. You couldn't even call it a town, just a collection of a few adobe huts and a few clappered buildings nestled alongside a small stream. On the other side of the stream, as history recounts, was a dead, was deadly country. Apaches had made a last stand in the desert and raided the town from their position. Lost Trail had seen its share of bloody streets. Near the edge of the little town was an adobe structure, a little larger than the others, with a creaky wooden sign hanging over the door. Scrawled in badly faded Old English lettering were the words... Lost Trail Hotel. A small lady in a blue shawl met them at the door with a smile, Mrs. Croft. Her soft blue eyes were wrapped with wrinkles and tanned skin. She tilted her head in greeting. Her long coils of snow-white hair wrapped up in a bun and tied with gemstone pins and a net. She blinked her blue eyes when she spoke. Welcome, folks. I'm Mrs. Croft. You come inside now. George and Wilma stepped into a parlor of antique furnishings that included a hand-carved Palo Verde wood sofa, upholstered in blue velvet, and a rocking chair. While they registered, they noticed several other old chairs and washstand on which a hand-painted china bowl stood with a matching china pitcher that was filled with water from a well just out back. Mrs. Croft smiled and mentioned she had never been to Sonoida, but wanted to travel there someday. George and Wilma noted the narrow hallway as they followed Mrs. Croft to their room. There was but one light fixture in the hallway, carbide light that had been converted and now shone dimly with a 25-watt electrical bulb. Inside the room, there was a single-cord light fixture hanging from the ceiling near an old bed of curved and scrolled brass. A bath and a wash basin had been built into one corner of the room. Mrs. Croft smiled and said, Your meal will be ready in a few minutes. Then she ambled out the room. George and Wilma changed into fresh clothes, and upon re-entering the parlor, found Mrs. Croft arranging antique dinnerware and glasses on a walnut table covered with red checkered tablecloth. She finished by placing settings of a stainless steel cutlery that had been brought out on a wagon train. George noticed place settings for just the two of them, and he asked Mrs. Croft if he and Wilma would be the only two guests this evening. He received a smile and a polite nod from the old lady busy with her place settings. She remarked that it was a little early in the year for guests on a regular basis. Mrs. Croft went to the kitchen and returned with a plate of chicken and another of mashed potatoes. She then brought out a plate of homemade rolls and apple pie. Enjoy your stay, she said. I'll be next door if y'all need anything. After the meal, George and Wilma toured the adjacent Wells Fargo office. An old safe sat along the back wall and a record book lay on the desk, just as they had a century before. There was an old couch where patrons waited and where the locals of the time no doubt gathered to bullshit and hear the latest news from Tombstone, Tucson, or other parts of the state. Outside, the tracks sat rusting on long-rotted ties. Weather-beaten markers were visible in a little graveyard on a hill above the creek. In its heyday, Lost Trail had seen many diverse people. Some of them, George Gardner would soon learn, remained behind in one form or another. (laughs) 
Stop being a passenger in life. Stop waiting in traffic like everyone else. Take your ego to the next level and travel across town at hundreds of miles an hour. The San Andreas Flight School. Become a licensed pilot in as little as three hours. Take out your friends and family in spectacular fashion by getting certified. Don't believe what you hear? Flying is easy. It's mostly autopilot anyway. Click a few buttons, set the destination, and hang in back with the ladies. Imagine how hot she'll get when you tell her you can leave for a tropical paradise at a moment's notice on a plane. Always wanted to get into the exciting international courier business? You need to fly. Tired of dealing with the horrible airlines and their graying pilots? Get your pilot's license. A turbulence-free future is yours. The San Andreas Flight School. The pleasant evening passed into nightfall. George and Wilma strolled back into the hotel, and after doing some reading, decided it was time to call it a night. After Wilma got into bed, George turned off the switch on the bare bulb hanging from the ceiling, and the room was plunged into darkness. It had been a long day, and in a few minutes, Wilma was passed the fuck out, and George lay in the darkness with thoughts of the little-known town and desert running through his head. Exploring historical places always invigorated him and got him thinking about the past. This energy often kept him thinking long into the night. The crystal meth didn't help with that problem. Tonight was one of those nights, and he knew he would not get to sleep right away, if at all. It was then that a strange noise began in the hall. It was an odd sound of crying. George was at once perplexed and alarmed. He felt the hair on the back of his neck stand straight up. He sat up in bed while the odd crying continued. It sounded like a woman, weeping and wailing. A wavering sound. It spoke of terrible mourning. It clearly was coming from out in the hall, and Wilma continued to sleep, even though, to him, the sounds were loud and unnerving. George began to wonder if he was indeed hearing the wailing or if he was imagining it, but the wailing grew louder and closer. What is that bitch crying about in the hall? What in the fuck is wrong out there? The darkness closed in even darker now, and George felt a clammy sensation enveloping him. He continued to sit upright in bed, nearly frozen, and the wailing continued. Unmistakably the sound of a woman in terrible distress. George didn't know what to do, uh, especially about his wife, because she still had not awakened. He decided to let her sleep, and the wailing seemed to be moving up the hall now, slowly past the door. George made himself get out of bed. What if somebody needs help? He forced himself through the inky darkness towards the door where the wailing was down the loudest. He took a deep breath and gripped the doorknob. It creaked, and the door came back towards him. The hallway was in heavy shadow from the poor lighting, but it took no light to see the big ball of white mist that was floating along the ceiling, moving around towards one of the corners. In the middle of the mist was a woman's head, turned almost sideways with her eyes open wide. George froze again and stood next to the wall that was by the door jam, trying to comprehend what it was that he was seeing. Numb with shock, he watched as his head suspended itself near a corner of the ceiling, and the wailing continued. The woman's lips were full and bright red, and her hair long and black. She stared from the ball of light, and her complexion was waxy and smooth, seemingly like that of a statue. Her head was turned, as if she might be resting it on a pillow. The vision made him want to scream, but his breath was caught in his throat. Suddenly, the apparition rose like evaporating mist into the ceiling and hallway, and it was once again black and silent. George quivered and forced himself to move. The only sound was a scraping against old wood as George pressed tightly against the wall, backed through the doorway and into his room. His senses were reeling with terror, and George slid inside and pushed the door closed with trembling hands. His mind tried to reject what his eyes had just seen, and his chest rose and fell with his breath as he fumbled across the room, reaching for the hanging bulb. He shuffled and groped and stumbled against objects in the darkness until he finally found the suspended bulb and pulled it. 
Wilma had never awakened and was still sleeping, her back to the light. George was mystified. His wife hadn't heard or felt anything. He put an arm on her shoulder but decided against waking her to tell her what he had just witnessed. What would she think? Would she tell him he, he was dreaming? He didn't want to seem like a dipshit. Besides, what good would it do to scare her as well? He considered turning off the light and dismissing the entire incident, but it all seemed so real. It seemed just as real as his wife still laying in restless, restful sleep. George was beginning to doubt himself now, wondering if what had happened was real or merely a dream. But he was still shaking. He could see vividly in his mind the statue-like head with the black hair and red lips, and he knew he would always see it. There was, no, it was nothing like a dream. No, it was real. George knew that the head was not something his imagination could have created on its own. Nothing could convince him that the noise and the vision hadn't appeared. There was no question he had seen a ghost. Then George began to feel something resembling sorrow. Beyond the horror of the woman's image was a sense of bleak despair and seemed to permeate the blind fear that George had felt first upon seeing the vision. What terrible thing had happened to this woman? Who was she? Had she been Indian or Hispanic? With those long black hair, with the long black hair and those solemn eyes? And why was she here in just the form of a head tilted in white mist? George Gardner couldn't answer any of these questions, so he turned off the bare bulb and tried to sleep, but couldn't. Instead, he sat awake, watching the door, listening, dreading the silence that might at any might at any time again erupt into that woeful wailing. But neither the wailing nor the vision returned during the night. For a long time, George lay in the darkness, considering what he'd seen and why. Finally decided it would probably never be explained. The next morning, George and Wilma packed and headed back to Sonoida, and they, they didn't see Mrs. Croft, who stayed next door in her little house. She didn't serve breakfast, just dinner. And George wondered if the old lady knew anything about what existed inside the hotel. On the way home, George and Wilma talked about his experience, and Wilma listened without comment. That kind of thing didn't happen. George certainly wished it hadn't happened. Over the years, the topic was discussed only at brief and infrequent intervals. The few friends of George chose to discuss it, that he chose to discuss it with, listened and nodded, understanding, but unable to explain what happened to him. These friends were a choice few who might know what it meant, since they had similar experiences. Some had seen things, some hadn't, but all felt something at one time or another. And his friends told him that the desert held many secrets, and nobody would ever fully understand all of them. Over the years, George Gardner came to realize that the floating head in the Lost Trail Hotel was an experience he could neither deny nor understand. It meant only one thing for certain. The dead of the Arizona desert country are not all resting in peace. Defense! 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 Uh, boring. Isn't it time you embrace the wit and vitality of European-style chanting only at the next L.S. Vendors home game? You're gonna get your fucking head it's cultured, it's fun for the whole family, and it's finally over here. Who ate all the pies? Who ate all the pies? You fat bastard, you fat bastard, you ate all the pies! We Americans are such Philistines, we haven't understood the cultural significance of mass hatred, xenophobia, and alcohol abuse. Well, soccer in the U.S. is no longer for housewives. Now, it's for everyone. Come see the sport that until now America couldn't get its head around because it's not 75% commercials. The LS Benders. Season tickets only $50. You're going to get your fucking head kicked in! Thank you very much for tuning back in, guys. This has been another wonderful episode of the Anthology of Horror. As always, I'm Spring Heel Jack, your host and narrator. And I can be reached for questions, comments, concerns, and or hate mail at springheeljack at anthologyofhorror.com that is spring-heeled-jack at anthologyofhorror.com 
please, if you think we uh, are deserving, go ahead and rate the show five stars in the iTunes store. It makes it a lot easier for me to get some sort of progression going with the show. It has been ad-free this entire time. However, my time is worth money, and I'm beginning to realize that. And I don't expect anything from anybody, but if you guys were able to, I've done some numbers, and uh, I would actually be able to quit my job if every person that listens to this podcast donated a dollar a month on Patreon. I could do this full-time every day. If that's something that interests you, please go ahead and go to anthologyofhorror.com, check out the website, and then you'll see my Patreon link in the top right corner. And I believe it's the uh, Drac, it looks like the Drac me sign or the dollar sign or Oliver the Orphan or Little Redhead Annie. I don't, I don't know, something in the top corner that'll link you to Patreon. I'm not too sure on all this technological shit, but links can be found there. And please don't hesitate to email me. I am not great at responding in a timely fashion, but that's just because I uh, have little to no energy most days because of my job. I'm not ignoring you. I will get back to you immediately upon reading it. I promise you that. And I appreciate you guys reaching out. It means a lot to me. So let's get to this uh, top 10 list of the most influential cities. People that have listened to this show the most, at least listened to the last episode the most. Number one. Oh, deadlock tie, actually. Chicago, Illinois, and San Antonio, Texas. You guys are deadlocked. Texas is making a push for the top 10 again. I see uh, Dallas, Texas, number three. Blackheath, England, first time on the top 10 list. Welcome. Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania, another first timer. Thank you very much. Glendale Heights, Illinois. Tagard, Oregon. Atlanta, Georgia. Wichita, Kansas. And Melbourne, Victoria. That's the top 10. Thank you guys very much for listening and for making this show fun for me to do. Without you guys, I probably would have just shot myself already. So thank you very much. And, uh, Tune back in for another episode in this series. I'm going to do a few more, uh, a few more episodes in this arc of haunted shit from the old west. I appreciate you guys. Stay spooky.